you're listening to the Jeremy Says Podcast, and I am Jeremy. Today, I've been thinking a lot about, about my place in the world. I've, I've come into this like contemplative place because of all the busyness that I've had this, this week. This week, I really cleaned up my yard, spring break, so I did like a lot of spring cleaning. The yard work is in preparation still for landscaping. I've come up with some really good ideas. And I also cleaned up the garage really well. The garage is actually functional again. I finished the bed frame that I've been working on, and it's looking fantastic, by the way. But this week, I've also been listening on the radio to certain things. Uh, coverage in the news has been really centered on the the case around, about uh, George Floyd and his murder last year. I've had a lot to think about with this because I think that the pinnacle or the, the, the top, the visible part of police brutality um, towards people of color has a much longer and deeper legacy that I think most people are aware of. And sometimes people will brush it off and say, you know, what is this? People overreacting. Um, and the common, oh, very popular stance is, oh, blue lives matter, right? As if it was a problem of police versus people. Really, there's it's more complicated than that. It has to do with um, the world's colonial legacy, and what that means is that the West, European, ethnocentric Europe, um, expanded its power through conquest, through colonizing the world. You know what did that mean for this land, the Americas? If you went to public school, you might have heard some beautiful little stories the same as I did, and I didn't really think too much about it. In fact, I think that probably my religious faith, Mormonism, and its teachings also glazed over the histories of my people, saying that somehow they're tied to the to the people of the Middle East. you got to read the Book of Mormon to really understand that story. Actually, <laughs> even reading the Book of Mormon is still hard to understand that one. But throughout my life, I've then had this real experience of having my histories and the histories of my people glazed over. <clears throat> so today I really wanted to read this this fact sheet that I found. It's called the Indigenous Peoples slash First Nations Fact Sheet for the Poor People's Campaign. I'll go ahead and read it and make some comments as I go. Quote, Who will find peace with the lands? The future of humankind lies waiting for those who will come to understand their lives and take up their responsibilities to all living things. Who will listen to the trees, the animals, the birds, the voices of the places of the land? As the long-forgotten peoples of the respective continents rise and begin to reclaim their ancient heritage, they will discover the, meanings, the meaning of the lands of their ancestors. That is when the invaders of North American continent will finally discover that for this land, God is red. End quote. From Vine Deloria Jr., God is red. Indigenous peoples and the respective First Nations are not only place-based peoples relationally connected to their traditional homelands, but have their own distinctive cultures, traditions, and pre-colonial and colonial histories since European, since European contact. Those pre-colonial histories are so old. I think this is my comment right here. Those pre-colonial histories are super old and awesome and to, to think about the, the kinds of... Uh, uh, things people did before European contact with these lands. 
and then that colonial history so quickly glazed over in public school um, and so meaningly, meaninglessly taught in a way, sometimes forgotten entirely. I think it makes a big difference, especially for people that look like me. I'll continue reading. The World Bank 2020 report states the global indigenous population is 476 million people, or 6% of the world's population, live in over 90 countries and through the cultural practices of traditional ecological knowledge protect about 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. Within the United States, U.S., Native Americans slash American Indians slash Alaska Native slash Native Hawaiians comprise about 2% of the entire United States population. There are indeed more than 6.9 million Native Americans and Alaska Natives. And in 2019, there were 1.9 million Native Hawaiians and the Pacific Islanders. Within the U.S., there are 574 federally recognized Indian nations, 62 rec state-recognized Indian nations, and hundreds of non-federally and non-state-recognized Native American nations. There are also 40 million Mexican, Central, and South American migrants that are either indigenous or of indigenous roots, residing within the politically defined borders of the U.S. Of these, about 3 million still have, an act still have active ties to their tribal linguistic and traditional knowledge. This part, I think, is important because if you look at my family and you look at us, our own mother, in her face you can see our connection to our Mexican and Central Mexican indigenous indigeneity. We will tease each other of how native or Indian we can even look. Sometimes Chinese, we have those smaller eyes. So that's been kind of the joke. Oh, look at you. Are you Mexican or what? But really, we should just be wondering, or should we should just be proud that we have that indigenous blood. It's kind of a beautiful thing to continue. Indigenous peoples are experiencing protracted violence of ongoing land loss and displacement that began with the doctrine of discovery. The central theological and settler colonial legal instrument used to dispossess all indigenous peoples' ownership of their traditional homelands, regardless of historical and current political status. Even Indian treaty nations only have the right to occupancy and not ownership of lands. Moreover, the U.S. government has never entirely honored any of the approximately 370 signed and ratified treaties with Indian nations that includes an equal number of treaties signed and never ratified during the treaty era, 1778 through 1871. The settler colonial legacy com commencing with the doctrine of discovery patterns of domination is directly connected to the present geogenocidal forms and environmental conditions of state, economic, political, and cultural violence perpetrated against indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. Indeed, the doctrine of discovery is one of the clearest expressions of the, quote, distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism, end quote which the Poor People's Campaign has taken a core stand against. I really like that. I think it's important to acknowledge that, that wording, the distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism. I can't say how much I see that everywhere. I've seen it most of my life, as, uh, as most of my life has been kind of shattered, or at one point 
filled and it is actually fulfilling to me to fill a part of that moral narrative and religious nationalism that seemed to make Christianity a center, giving my bloodline or my participation in the religion a sort of power. But now I see it as, as um, distorted. <laughs> the first word in that quote, distorted moral narrative. I'll keep reading. Therefore, we recognize that for a just and moral transition to occur, unconditional full support of indigenous peoples' self-determination and sovereignty, revocation of the doctrine of discovery, total compliance with all signed, unsigned, and ratified treaties, and full acknowledgement and adherence to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples are a necessary prerequisite for creating intergenerational and culturally sustainable futures for all. And now the fact sheet goes on to give some more facts. There are a lot of statistics about um, Indigenous Peoples or First Nations um, documented by the Poor People's Campaign, I guess, or gathered by in this fact sheet. Um, I'll just read a few of them. In 1823, the U.S. Supreme Court case Johnson v. McIntosh codified the doctrine of discovery, which legally justified U.S. federal ownership of indigenous slash native lands in exchange for giving Native Americans civilization and Christianity. Ouch! You know, man, who who wanted that civilization? The cost that it brought. And who wanted that Christianity? Yikes. <laughs> Anyway, let's see, or another statistic here. Between 18, uh, sorry, between 1985 and 2015, Native American tribes and nations won approximately 23% of all federal Indian law cases adjudicated by the United States U.S. Supreme Court. In 20, 2009, the Native American Rights Fund and the National Congress of American Indians issued a joint statement stipulating indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations should avoid America's judicial system because justice is untenable, illusory, and potentially risky endeavor in terms of additional losses in Native American individual and collective rights, freedoms, and sovereignty. Ratification of the 15th Amendment of the United States Constitution in 1870 did not confer Native Americans the right to vote due to their lack of U.S. citizenship. All Native Americans were unilaterally given U.S. citizenship when the U.S. Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. So that means only just under 100 years ago is when Natives of this land were seen as U.S. citizens. This U.S. constitutional government. That's kind of messed up. Less than 100 years. And it says all Native Americans were not accorded the right to vote until the U.S. Congress passed the 1975 Amendment to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So that's much less than 100 years. Just last year, in 2020, the Native American Rights Fund identified 10 major obstacles causing forms of Native American voter suppression and 12 major reasons for contemporary impediments to political participation. Here's one that kind of shook me because... It, I don't know why these uh, attacks on our biology or attacks on any people's biology is such a affront to me. It bothers me so much. It says, until 1976, forced sterilization of Native women was practiced by the Indian Health Service. In fact, anywhere from 25 to 50% of the indigenous women of reproductive age in the U.S. were sterilized between 1970 
1976, this state-sanctioned practice established a legacy of violence against women, led to future smaller Native American family sizes, and fostered a process of extermination and genocide. That, for real, if this had happened in our family, maybe none of us would have been born. Quite wild and significant when you think about how much space we take up. <laughs> maybe I can say that better. Significant because of how much I like to center my own life and the life of my family as something important to society and to the world. How about that? Here's another, uh, another point from this list. The percentage of American Indian and Alaska Natives living in poverty in 2017 was estimated to be 26%, 26.8% as compares to 4% for the nation as a whole. Indigenous peoples also have the highest unemployment rate of any ethnic group, 12% in 2016, compared to the national average of 5.8%. I can sort of relate to this one too. and Well, actually, I think a lot of people can relate to it and also acknowledge it because of our experience in the cities and seeing homeless people. This point says, in tribal areas, homelessness translates into overcrowding rather than people sleeping on the street. In 2013 to 2015, between 42,000 and 85,000 people in tribal areas were staying with friends or relatives because they could not afford a place of their own. Among the U.S. population in 2020, about 11 to 14 percent of Americans are food insecure. For Native American people around the country, the rate is three to four times higher. So people getting crowded, people not having good food to eat, it's, it's disturbing, I think. You know, this is in our country, the land of the free, the home of the brave. And this could be me. Every time I think about that, you know, selfishly, that's what it takes for me. How does it affect me? Well just by the luck or chance of not being born on a reservation, or me being born as a U.S. citizen, and yet a lot of other things fairly similar. Mom is fairly indigenous to Mexico, and those roots in the Americas really make me think a lot more about this. And so when I reflect upon the racial issues in our country, I often reflect upon my own issues, my own confrontations with racism. I still have a I remember some of the earliest stories about racism go pretty to when I was pretty young. I'll, I will likely talk about that more later, but today I just wanted to reflect on these issues within the Native American and First Nations and to think moving forward what has to be done. I think a big first step is to decolonize our education, to learn more about what the real history of our place is. Those frightening facts of the frightening fact of progress being built on the back of backs of slaves and being predicated on the death or the genocide of many many native peoples i think it's so important to avoid the erasure that comes with time and how history is written and erased by not being talked about so i'll talk about those histories and I'll slowly bring in my own histories, but I look forward to continuing my work, I hope, to be involved in education for liberation, for my own liberation, but also for the liberation of the minds of anybody who cares to see something different from the status quo, something better. It's been said before, but I can say it again. We can emancipate ourselves from mental slavery.
none but ourselves can free our minds. Thanks, Bob Marley. You have been listening to the Jeremy Said Podcast with your brother, Jeremy. Thanks.